Whether or not that demographic should be allowed anywhere near this film, it's a heartening vote of confidence that today's kids, despite the onslaught of R-rated life material, are all right. That's from Sarah Stewart at New York Post reviewing Good Boys, one of four films we're reviewing this week, including Queen and Slim, Gloria Bell, and also Making Waves, a terrific documentary here we can tell you all about, which is about sound in Hollywood. Speaking of Hollywood, though, it's all about the Oscars, baby. That's right. Your full Oscars recap right now here on Cinephile. Also, Manola Dargis, the great film critic from the New York Times, is going to join me. She'll give her reaction to Parasite winning Best Picture, the Oscars, Sundance, Life of a Film Critic, all that and more is coming up. Uh, she's a really great guest. Plus, in honor of Queen and Slim, which is like a Bonnie and Clyde film, we're going to do the Mount Rushmore of heist movies, so that is coming up later on. But honestly, you've done the right thing here, checking out Cinephile. As always, appreciate all of you subscribing, rating, and review. Now that I've shown that there's no hard feelings, you can always go home again. I'm back on the Levitard show on ESPN Airwaves. All of you Levitard fans, please hook it up. Can you subscribe to Cinephile on Apple Podcasts, rate, and review? Trust me, I was as surprised as anybody I was back on the show. If Bob Knight can go home, maybe I can be back on ESPN Airwaves again. So once again, please do support the podcast, rate, and review. As far as the Oscars themselves, away we go, Joe. Um, I got to be honest with you. Out of the gate, brutal. Like, why is Janelle Monáe singing? I don't care. I miss the Billy Crystal montages, okay? How much money do we have to give Ricky Gervais to host this thing? We'll give him everything we have to let him go up there and just completely destroy all of Hollywood. He'll be hysterically funny, and it'll be awesome. Instead, I got Janelle Monáe. I got Eminem for some inexplicable reason. You do a montage of the best songs in movies, and then he's the emblem. He is the representative of all the great songs in movies. He's going to sing Lose Yourself. My poor man, Marty's falling asleep. I'm like, what happened to the great film montages of my youth? You know, that's why I fell in love with movies. You'd watch the Oscars, and they'd do a montage about great editing in movies. You'd go, oh, wow, hey, that looks really interesting. I'd like to watch Rear Window. I like the way that pan is. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, they do something about foreign films. You'd see something about Fellini. And go, oh, okay, well, that's what La Strada is. Okay, interesting. And that's where you'd watch movies. There was no nods whatsoever towards film love, film montages, film greats of the past. None of that stuff. I'm on with my guy, Mad Dog Russo on MLB Network, and I'm raving about Parasite. And, of course, I was thrilled that it won. And he joked and said, yeah, but it's no from here to eternity, which, of course, I think of uh, Burt Lancaster and uh, Deborah Curry writhing together on the beach. And I said, well, yeah. Yeah, Sinatra won Best Supporting Actor. All that stuff comes out of what? Watching the Oscars, because everybody always sees that scene from From Here to Eternity, and then you can reference it. This year's Oscars had none of that, so that was my first major issue. I'm trying to watch the Oscars, and instead I'm watching the Grammys, a song after song. And by the way, the nominees for Best Original Song, they were brutal too. I mean, it was perfect time to put my kids to bed. I'm like, all right, 8.30, put my one-year-old to bed, because I don't even watch Adina Menzel. All right, the next song before, I put the other guys to bed. I'm like, this is perfect. This, this, is, this is the moment where if you don't have children, you just go to the bathroom, or you're having a smoke or doing something because as a show listen first of all you need a host get a host here people the host keeps everything together the connective tissue whether it's ricky gervais who i would love or jimmy kimmel was sensational i mean colbert i mean there's lots of guys out there who'll be really really funny and smart and educated and instead no host oh it'll move quicker but that's three and a half hours so it's still going to be long start it earlier than started at 7 30 i mean this goes back to my essential point, too. Why are we so obsessed with the pace and getting it done? It's once a year. Like, if it's six hours, who cares? It's once a year anyways. You're going to get a huge audience of people like me, people like all of you, movie lovers. It's like when people complain about postseason baseball being too long. I'm like, no, listen, if I love playoff baseball, I don't give a damn if it's five hours. It's riveting to me, so I don't care if the game ends at 1 a.m. I'm going to be into the thing. I mean, I don't understand this whole process of make it quicker, shorter, tighter. But no, I mean, I haven't seen the ratings yet, but... Ah, oh, it makes no sense. Those those were my biggest uh, areas of annoyance. But as far as 
what everybody cares about, which is gambling. I did not enter any Oscar pools. Uh, for those who are wondering, Adam Amin, Dan Stantic, what happened to Gold Derby? I tried to get back on Gold Derby. I was previously one of the experts' picks there. Uh, three years ago, I won of all the experts, 24 experts, I believe. I, I corrected the right number of awards, which is 21 of 24. We had Chris Beecham on here a few months ago from Gold Derby, my buddy. He tried to get me back on, but Tom O'Neill, the boss, said, listen, I got to be honest with you, we have too many experts picks right now and too many from smaller places. So for people who were tweeting me and wondering, say, hey, where are your Oscar picks? I didn't have a place to put them, except, of course, on Twitter, where you can follow me, Adnan S. Virk. So before every category, you know, I'm sitting next to my man, Hussein Madhavji here, and I'm tweeting out my picks, so best live action, sure, I'm tweeting it immediately, and then I'm getting it right, just, you know, for the humble brag here, minus the humility. And so, listen, my apologies to those who did not have my picks, those who were smart, like my guy, Eddie Perez, who should be the manager of the Mets, he texted me, he said, listen, my wife's in a pool, I'm like, oh, I'm happy to give you my picks, boom, Mirba Perez, crushing it, as she's texting me, I'm with a bunch of Spanish women right now, I'm 11 for 11, I'm like, great, have at it, I'll give out my picks, I don't care, I'm glad of you, you reap the rewards. Um, so we were doing really good until, and Joe and I are going to talk about this sound mixing, sound editing. I went for the double, double of 1917. Instead, Joe, you and I both got tripped up because Ford versus Ferrari won one of those categories, right? Yeah. And, and typically maybe I'm wrong, but it, it seems like when one movie wins sound mixing, they typically won editing too. So that was kind of a curveball. So that was annoying. That was the only miss I'd had. And listen, now the awards are getting very predictable. I mean, everybody knows all the acting award winners were going to happen. Joaquin Phoenix is on something. Whatever drugs he's on, I'll take some of those. He's crazy. He's talking about calf's milk. It makes no sense. I mean, Joker, he's the least deserving of the five nominees, and he wins Best Actor. But listen, he was great in The Master, tremendous and Walk the Line. Congrats to Joaquin Phoenix. Nice little nod to River Phoenix. Renee Zellweger, whose speeches have been pretty good leading up to this because she's been a tsunami winning everything. Her speech is brutal. Way too long, boring, uninteresting. All right, great. So you win an award for a movie which everybody agrees is average to below average. You already have one Oscar. Like, why couldn't Scarlett Johansson have won for Marriage Story, but I don't know. I guess we'll figure that out another day. And then we get to the moment of Best Director. And of course, I want Scorsese to win. Of course, it depresses me that of the nine nominees for Best Picture, only one film went home empty-handed. That's The Irishman. 0 for 10. I mean, just brutal. They have to sit through that thing. Poor Marty's falling asleep during Eminem. What a great reaction shot. Perfect meme right away of him closing his eyes. But when Bong Joon-ho won Best Director, that's why we love the Oscars. That's one of those great where-were-you moments. I was like, oh, my God. Like, shocking. Like, Mendes had won everything. The DGA, the BAFTA, the Golden Globe. It's in the bag. And when Bong Joon-ho won Best Director, I mean, that was an exhilarating moment. And, of course, his speech was fantastic. He's been so endearing at all these festivals and awards because he's self-deprecating and he's naturally funny and charming. But I thought the international feature film speech was okay. It wasn't great by Bong joon Ho standards. But director, he was tremendous. I mean, he goes there, he's clearly flummoxed. And right away, praises Marty. You know, he gives a quote. And this is that quote from Scorsese. You know, we, we revered you in, 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 you know, film classes in South Korea. I couldn't imagine I'd ever get nominated next to you. And then he credits rightfully Quentin Tarantino, who's always been a real uh, supporter of Asian cinema. So that was a nice moment. And then he throws in, okay, yeah, thanks to Sam and Todd as well. By the way, you got to rewatch it. Mendes' reaction, he gives one of those like... <sighs> You know, raises the eyebrows like pissed. Like I was not expecting to lose to the South Korean guy. Like, are you kidding me? So that was a great moment. And then you get to best picture. And as my friend Alf is messaging me like, dude, change your pick. I'm like, no, no, I'm going with 1917. He's like, come on. You as a sports fan, no momentum. You know this happens. All of a sudden one happens. I'm like, no, no, it's going to be 1917. And sure enough, Jane Fonda gives a delicious pause and Parasite wins Best Picture. An incredible moment. As you all know now, it is the first film ever not in English to win Best Picture. And everybody who has seen the film knows how brilliant it was. It was the word-of-mouth film of 2019. It won the Palme d'Or in May. 
and then never slowed down. Um, as far as box office, it's made $31 million for a foreign film that's tremendous domestic. It's made $115 million worldwide. So uh, thanks to my man, Mad Dog Russo, for having me on. But when he says no one's seen it, that's inaccurate. People have seen it. I think more and more are going to see it now, especially that's one best picture. And Chris's point to me, he said, you know, is this, and he was being cynical. He goes, listen, everybody knows the Oscars have a real problem here with a lack of diversity. Of course, Chris Rock was hilarious, by the way. Him and Steve Martin should have hosted the whole thing. They were hysterical in the opening. And Rock pointed out the lack of diversity, only Cynthia Erivo being nominated for Harriet. So Mad Dog's making the point to me, okay, well, they just give it to Parasite because of the fact they got an issue with diversity. But anybody who's actually seen all the contenders knows how great Parasite is. I mean, the most lukewarm reaction to Parasite is my guy Scott Rogowski gave it 8 out of 10. That's the worst I've heard. And most people I know said to me, oh, my God, that's a breathtaking film. It's so audacious. It's unforgettable. I couldn't even know how to describe it to people. I mean, it's it's remarkable. And so oftentimes we get conditioned to the safer choice. And I love 1917. I mean, longtime listeners here of Cinephile, loyal listeners know, recite with me, what were my top five films of the year? I had The Irishman at one. I had Parasite at two. I had 1917 at three. I had Last Black Man in San Francisco at four. I had Midsommar at five. Marriage Story at six. Uh, Blinded by the Light 7, Two Popes 8. So, you know, I think the Academy did a good job of recognizing what were the actual best pictures of the year. And if it wasn't going to be The Irishman, then I was thrilled that it was Parasite because that was, as I said, an unforgettable movie experience. So you talk about not only the film that I feel was rightfully rewarded, uh, but incredible moments. I mean, it was, Joe, when Parasite won Best Director and Best Picture, I mean, that was a where were you moment, right? 100%. So, so happy to creating history and I agree with you. Um, anyone who's seen the movie knows why it won. It wasn't just because of the diversity issues, because the film doesn't fit into your typical categories, and it's really, really good. So I'm very happy for it. Yeah, I mean, it was, like I said, Bong Joon-ho himself was surprised by the fact that one director and picture. Other surprises of the night, Toy Story 4 winning Best Animated Film. This was a weird one, because Missing Link won the Golden Globe. Klaus took the Annie. I thought Toy Story 4 would still win, but I think for some, it was a bit of a surprise. Uh, it does win just as Toy Story 3 did back in 2011. Um as I said, a disappointment here for the Irishman. And I don't know, is this on Netflix? Maybe there's backlash against Netflix or some of that. Listen, Steven Spielberg says he's a good friend and said, listen, Netflix movies should not be nominated for Oscars. It's not fair. Our movies have to be in theaters for three months and they get put on, you know, home DVD or on demand, whatever. You shouldn't be able to put a film in, in a few theaters and also put it on Netflix within a month. So I think, is there some Netflix backlash? Yeah. And as Manola Dargis will tell us, there's some backlash against the movie itself. People thought it was too long or too slow or too boring. Um, all the criticisms that I disagree with, but ultimately the Irishman goes home empty-handed, which is a shame. Just like Gangs of New York, another Scorsese film, which was viewed as a frontrunner at one time, 0 for 10 when it comes to the Oscars. Uh, as I mentioned, Eminem, hey, listen, nothing against Eminem. Obviously, Eminem's a great artist and, and Lose Yourself is a great song, but I just... I thought it made no sense why the hell it was there at the Oscars, but maybe that's just me. Maybe now I sound like I'm 90 years old now. I was all about Randy Newman, all right? Hey, Randy Newman performing. I'm like, let's go. That was a great moment. And Elton John, congrats to him. As I've said before on the podcast, I did not expect to like Rocket Man, and I thought it was fantastic. I think that song's pretty good, too, and I thought his speech was very nice as well. So congrats uh, once again to Elton John. Other moments of the night. Listen, as far as the, the awards, if you can do well with the shorts, that's where you're really doing good. And once I, I was knocking those out, you know, Hair Love for Animated Short, Matthew H. Cherry, former NFL player, I believe, Costume Design, Little Women, Production Design, 
uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Adapted screenplay, I wasn't sure, but I went with Taika over Greta Gerwig, and indeed, Taika Waititi wins, which is hysterical, because he took shots at Todd Phillips, and Todd Phillips was complaining about making comedies today and sound like just a, you know another frustrated, angry white male who's like, oh yeah, woke, woke audiences now, you can't make comedies. Taika made a joke about that on Twitter, and then for Taika Waititi to win an Oscar in the category against Todd Phillips for Joker, I thought was poetic justice. So that was something I particularly enjoyed. Joker did win two Academy Awards, which just means I'm going to have to face life this way. Joaquin Phoenix wins for Best Actor. I mentioned the bizarre speech, Calf's Milk, and also won for Score, as expected. Hilder coming through, although I was upset. I wanted Thomas Newman to win for 1917. But they did do a good job, of course, of spreading the wealth around. Marriage Story, lone victory. I mean, tough night for Netflix. Lone victory for Marriage Story goes to Laura Dern for Best Supporting Actress, who had won everything coming in. Um, and after that, I mean, like I said, it was it was fairly uh, fait accompli as far as what was going to happen. You knew Elton John was going to win Best Original Song. You knew Deacons was going to win. I mean, God, they should just rename Best Cinematography, Best Roger Deacons Performance, because 15 nominations, he'd gone 0 for 13, and now he's 2 for 2. Now my guy's on a hot streak. He wins for Blade Runner 2049, and now he wins for 1917, so that's something nice to see. Oftentimes, you think about editing lining up with picture. Did not happen this year. Uh, although Parasite was nominated for Best Film Editing, Ford versus Ferrari wins for Best Editing, but it, of course uh, was had no chance of winning Best Picture, although it did get a nomination. So that's the way things went down. Um, visual effects, I thought the Irishman might pull off an upset. I mean, on my scorecard, I had an 0 for 10, and I went 0 for 10. I thought visual effects, it might win, but it was 1917. Makeup and hairstyling pretty easily. Bombshell comes through there. Congrats to my guy, Michael Buick, who actually had predicted, a former guest in Cinefile, he was messaging me going, I'm telling you right now, man, Parasite's going to win. So an unforgettable night, certainly for the Oscars. Joe, your thoughts on the ceremony itself, lack of a host, a lot of music. What stood out to you? I'm glad you said it. I mean, you're right. Steve Martin and Chris Rock should have just hosted it. The whole time I'm watching the awards, I'm thinking, why don't why don't they just bring back a host? Because I want the monologue. I want the transitions. I want the jokes. I want all of that. And what you said, Janelle Monet coming out. I love Janelle Monet, but it's also just that as the opening number. Eminem was really confusing. All of it. Again, Joaquin Phoenix's speech and the calves milk, what you just said, like all, all of that just struck a little off to me. You know what I mean? So my big takeaway is bring back the hosts. Um, this award ceremony, 23.6 million people watched it this year, down from 26.5 million from last year, Adnan. Wow. So a 3 million hit. That's significant, man. Yeah, yeah, 20% drop in total viewers, 31% uh, drop in the demo. Because I know there was a slight bump a year ago with no host. They thought, we'll do it again, but that, that may cause them to rethink things. That certainly is a precipitous drop. All right, so that's the story when it comes to the Academy Awards. Uh, once again, thank you for uh, supporting us all year long here in Cinephile. And in the weeks to come, I'm going to turn our attention, you know, a little more away from movies now, because as we all know, most of the movies in the screen are not very good. So we'll be talking more TV shows. As a matter of fact, next week on Cinephile, I'll talk about the miniseries The Outsider, currently on HBO, starring Ben Mendelsohn and from the great writer Richard Price. I'll also talk about Curb Your Enthusiasm. By next week, it'll be halfway through uh, this 10th season. And uh, also Utopia Falls coming out soon on Hulu. My man Randall Thorne, all over that. So we'll talk about Utopia Falls as well. And Al Pacino's got a new show coming out on Hunter, called Hunters, uh, out on Amazon Friday, February 21st. That's something to look forward to. But once again, that was our Oscar coverage. When we come back, we'll talk about some movies. Let me clean up 2019. A few movies that I hadn't seen that I wanted to get to, including Good Boys. That's on the way.
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so a few movies from 2019 that I missed over time. And uh, like I said, we're going to be focusing more on a few TV shows in the next few weeks here. But let's talk about some movies from 2019 that I just hadn't had time to watch. And now I'm glad that I watched them because one of them was one of the funniest movies of the year. And that's called Good Boys. After being invited to his first kissing party, 12-year-old Max, Jacob Tremblay, who you remember from Room, panicking he doesn't know how to kiss, eager for some pointers, Max and his best friends, Thor and Lucas. And Lucas, I'm telling you right now, Keith L. Williams, this kid's a scene stealer. So funny. They decide to use Max's dad's drone, which Max is forbidden to touch, to spy, they think, on a teenage couple making out next door. When things go ridiculously wrong, the drone is destroyed, desperate to replace it for Max's dad, played by Will Forte, gets home. The boys skip school, set off on an odyssey of epically bad decisions involving some academically, excuse me, involving some accidentally stolen drugs, frat house paintball, and running from both the cops and terrifying teenage girls. Listen, it's really funny, okay? If it's, if it's from that uh, world of super bad, and you know, obviously, I, I wasn't surprised when I saw Seth Rogen co-produced it. I don't know what his involvement was. Maybe he just signed a check, put his name on it, whatever. But if you like super bad, if you liked, you know, This Is The End, these types of raunchy comedies, then you're going to like Good Boys. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Um, it's a little jolting and jarring to see kids who are 12 years old in sixth grade and, you know, dropping a lot of F-bombs and using sexual jokes and porn. And I mean, God forbid any of my boys are doing this uh, when they get to these ages. But honestly, it's really funny. And I, I like I said, Keith L. Williams in particular, he's got a handful of moments. I watched it on a plane when I was going to the Super Bowl in Miami. And I mean, I don't, I don't laugh out loud too much. I laughed out loud three separate times, particularly from his line deliveries. I mean, they... they this one, one of the teenage girls is asking what he's into, and he says ascension and anti-drug commercials and grilled cheese. Like that, that that's his idea of a good time. He's so funny playing like the, the goody two-shoes character. Um, but all those characters are really well done. And honestly, like I said, raunch comedy, uh, I really enjoyed it. Also, Michael O'Sullivan says from Washington Post, the central struggle of good boys, and yes, there is one, is between the popular crowd and the so-called tryhards epitomized by Thor who loves musical theater. Good Boys is one of those movies, Joe. I'm telling you right now, it's also short, 85 minutes. I like the soundtrack a lot as well. You know, good comedy needs a good soundtrack. Think of an Office Space's soundtrack, very entertaining. Good Boys, I'm giving it three with police. Have you seen it? Do you have any interest in seeing it? Oh, I have a ton of interest in seeing it. And I, that's music to my ears. I love a short movie, 85 minutes. I can I can do that easily. Uh, my question to you is, having seen Booksmart and Good Boys, which one do you like better? Which one has a funnier tone about it? Are they both kind of raunchy? How would you compare the two? Both definitely have raunch uh, as a part of their DNA. Good Boys certainly, I think, was a little more raunchy. I liked Booksmart more. If you said to me, you know, what was the funniest movie of 2019? Uh, well, I might say Midsommar because I thought it was a great dark comedy. But I, I would say um, I would say Booksmart was probably the funniest because I just think it's at a different level in terms of just smarts and uh, it's kind of off. It's operating on different levels almost. It's like a commentary in high school comedies. It's very meta. But, but I'm telling you right now, Good Boys is up there. I mean, I, I'm glad I saw it now because if somebody said to me, what was the best comedy of 2019? Good Boys would definitely be in the conversation. Okay, great. I'm definitely going to check it out then. All right, next up is Queen and Slim. 
a Bonnie and Clyde for the new generation. While on a forgettable first date together in Ohio, black man Daniel Kaluuya and a black woman, Jody Turner-Smith, pulled over for a minor traffic infraction. The situation escalates with sudden and tragic results when the man kills the police officer in self-defense. Terrified and in fear for their lives, the man, a retail employee, and the woman, a criminal defense lawyer, are forced to go on the run. But the incident is captured on video and goes viral, and the couple unwittingly become a symbol of trauma, terror, grief, and pain. For people across the country. This is from Melina Matsukas, who I think is a real find here. You know, she's made her name before with um, video. She did Beyonce's formation and I believe some other uh, videos of note. Uh, the writer is Lena Waithe and James Fry, who did the story. And I thought it was a, a really impactful movie. Like I said, Bonnie and Clyde for New Generation. This is not the first movie to show how people of color uh, interact with the police, whether scared of the police, police violence, brutality, etc. But it, it doesn't dwell on that i mean they certainly make their point with that but then the story is about this journey that they go on together and i thought it was romantic and at times very funny and blissful and i i love the presence of bokeem woodbine playing uncle earl he was really good in fargo as one of those actors just like i said has a lot of presence you've also got flea showing up from the red hot chili peppers chloe 70 kind of a random supporting cast but it's really held together by those two performances you know how good daniel clue is because you've seen get out but i thought jody turner smith is a real revelation playing queen um, the fact that at times she's very fractious and frustrated and argumentative and at times very soulful and romantic. And, you know, both these guys realize the walls are closing in, man. The APP is out. The cops know there's a cop killer out there on the run. How much time do they have? What are they going to do? Try to, you know, race into the city, find a plane, go to Cuba, never look back. I mean, it, it's incredible because I kept thinking about, too, maybe think of Richard Jewell and the fact that literally one moment in your entire life is irrevocably changed. And same thing here at Queen and Slim. This cop is just overzealous and, you know, obviously just looking for to punish these people unfairly. They react as they do in the moment, which I think is understandable. And all of a sudden, your life is never going to be the same again. You could be in prison for life or you could be dead, and this is what you're dealing with. So fugitives on the run. And I like the social commentary as well because, you know, they're being supported by some of the black communities. And hey, once they get recognized by people here and there, like, hey, I know who you guys are. Keep doing what you're doing. Fight the power. And they're like, no, no, this isn't what we're doing. We're not trying to make a statement here. We're just trying to be alive and live our lives. Uh, so Queen and Slim, I thought, particularly for its visual style from Melina Matsukas and excellent performances from Kaluuya and especially Jodie Turner-Smith, I'm recommending it highly. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. Queen and Slim is one of those movies, Joe. It's so hard because there's so many movies that come out late in the year. It was released November 27th. You know, they're trying to crack the audience. It actually did good financially. I believe it with a budget was between 15 and 20 million and the total box office gross domestic was 45 million. So if you can double your budget, that's a hit. So that's good news for Melina Matsukas and certainly for the, the company that produced it. But it would be nice to see a film like this rewarded. Johnny Oleksinski, excuse me, of the New York Post said, when you like characters this much, you hope everything will turn out for the best right till the very end. He's right. These are characters that are very winning and very likable. And Anne Hornaday Washington Post, the myriad impulses coursing through the film come together in a gorgeous scene in which Kaluuya and Turner Smith go on what turns out to be their second date at a warmly enveloping juke joint. I'm glad Hornaday mentioned that scene because that is really, you know, in the midst of this crisis, imagine your life is over. They actually find a little bit of time to reflect and dance. It's a really sweet, wonderful scene. Peter Travers, also Rolling Stone, says, Waith and Matsukas create a new form of protest art. Their film isn't meant to lionize these two everyday people turned folk heroes, but to celebrate their strength and pride. Joe, I'm highly recommending Queen and Slim. Love it. I've heard about the performances and how good they are. I also just want to point out, Sturgill Simpson, country recording artist, plays a police officer reading it. But my question uh, is, how is Flea? Does he actually have acting chops? To can he carry yeah, his own? He, he's not bad. He's he's one of the characters who's trying to uh, aid and abet them, and so uh, 
He has a maybe 10 to 15 minutes in the movie, but I thought he was good. I mean, I, I, as soon as I saw him, I go, well, well that's Flea. Um, but it wasn't like it was, uh, it wasn't a standout performance, but I don't think he detracted from the story either. I think he was fine in a, in a small role. That seems like a win right there for him then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not trying to do too much. The next one I wish I could rave about because it's got a couple actors I love, but it was a huge disappointment. It's called Gloria Bell. Starring Julianne Moore and John Turturro. Gloria is a free-spirited divorcee who spends her days at a straight-laced office job, her nights on the dance floor, joyfully letting loose at clubs around Los Angeles. After meeting Arnold on a night out, she finds herself thrust into an unexpected new romance filled with both the joys of budding love and the complications of dating, identity, and family. I love Julianne Moore. I think she's one of the best actresses alive. I think she can do anything. I mean, you think of her work with P.T. Anderson alone, won an Oscar for Still Alice. I mean, honestly, she's beyond reproach. But this is a film where there's just not nearly enough plot. It's an actress in her 50s, has a good relationship with her kids. Uh, and she just, like, like the story said, she goes out dancing, has a good time, and that's it. Eventually, she meets Arnold. Turturro can dance a little bit. They get to know each other a little bit. They go out to uh, her kid's party where she meets her ex-husband, played by Brad Garrett, out of nowhere. Everybody loves Raymond. He's fine. Jeannie Triplehorn from Basic Instinct. She's playing Brad Garrett's new uh, paramour. And so they got this scene there where Julianne Moore, you know, they're, they're reminiscing. They're looking at old pictures that are drunk and... He says, I'll look at this picture. We used to be in love. And you see Turturro in the background leave the party. And so, you know, afterwards, like, where the hell is Arnold? Arnold laughed. Oh, my God. Is he okay? We don't know what happened. And so the next day he calls, and she's not answering his call. And he confronts her. And she's like, what would you do? Like, I invited you to my my kid's party because I thought we had something here. And then you take off. He's like, oh, it was embarrassing what you did to me. The way your ex-husband was talking about being in love. And how could you do that to me? Blah, blah, blah. Eventually, they make up because he's, you know, effusively uh, apologetic. They go to Las Vegas, and while they're in Vegas, you know, he has this relationship where he's just, his kids have, like, they're just, he's so whipped by them. He's got, like, grown daughters, but they're, like, calling him or texting him. He's always at their beck and call. And as Julian Moore went to him, says to him, like, grow a pair. Like, you know, you have to have your own life now. You can't always be there for your kids. You've moved on. But sure enough, his ex-wife walks through a glass door, just didn't see it coming. She's got terrible cuts, and now she's in the hospital. And you have this moment here of, is, is Arnold going to go back there for his family, his ex-wife and his daughters, or is he going to try to experience his new life here with Gloria Bell? And sure enough, at dinner, he's saying, I'm going to stay with you, I'm going to stay with you. And if you'll excuse me for a moment, he gets up and he leaves. So now she's got a night out in Vegas. I mean, I think, I think it's Sean Astin in the movie. I, I'm not 100% sure here, but she makes out with him. She's getting drunk at the craps table. Her, she has to call her mom. Her mom has to pick her up from Vegas, go back to L.A. Now Arnold's calling a bunch of times. Now she unplugs the phone. She's obviously never going to speak to this guy. Like, what a gigantic jerk. I mean, the guy leaves her in Vegas because his ex-wife walked into a door. and Like, okay, like whatever. Deal with it, man. But So now she knows not to talk to him. She then goes and gets a paintball gun. I'm making the movie, by the way, sound much more interesting than this is. This is at the 90-minute mark of the movie where nothing much has happened. She then goes and gets a paintball gun because he runs a paintball company. And by the way, I'm spoiling the movie because I'm giving it one and a half maple leaves, so I don't want any of you to waste your time watching it. She then goes and gets a paintball gun that he had given her, goes to his house. Arnold's coming out with his groceries and starts shooting him with the paintball, which is hilarious. I mean, that's a great scene. And her daughters, sorry, excuse me, his daughters come out. Well, who are you, skinny bitch? What are you doing? She runs away, gets in the car. Drives away, and then the last scene, because of course I'm waiting for Gloria to play, and sure enough, they play Gloria, and she's out with her daughter and her son, and they're dancing, and that's the movie. Okay, 
You don't need to watch it. It's 98 minutes, maybe it's 105 minutes, a movie that you do not need to see. This is one of these character studies that just comes across as pretentious and pointless. I love Julianne Moore. I love John Turturro. They're capable of much, much better work. Michael Cera's in the movie as well. He's playing her son. He's got a few scenes. He's much better than... I mean, Rita Wilson shows up. Why, why is Tom Hanks' wife in this movie? I'm giving it one and a half Maple Leafs. Gloria Bell, a huge disappointment, Joe. Yeah, I, I can't really add to that other than... It is Sean Astin, and if he can't save this movie, Adnan, I'm tapping out. I'll watch anything with him. Listen, we've all put on weight over the years. Who, who am I to criticize? But I mean, Sean <laughs> Astin, looked, looked, he looked particularly bloated in the movie, so I'm like, I think that's Sean Astin, but I think he's put on a few. Anyways, he does get to make out with Julianne Moore. If she's naked in the movie a few times, if, if that's a recommendation for you, great. There's Julianne Moore naked again, 50-plus. Last movie I want to recommend, or at least talk about, I am going to recommend this one before we get to Manola Dargis, New York Times. And this is purely a film made for my guy, Joe. This is like a love letter to Joe. Few realize that sound is 50% of the cinematic experience. Building on the pioneering sight and sound discoveries of iconic filmmakers, the documentary features the first generation of recognized sound designers who designed great movies with sound before a frame was shot. The film explores the collaborative relationship between sound designers and the visionary directors they work with by entering their creative realms via interviews and clips from their movies. I mean, listen, you're listening to Cinephile. You're a movie geek, so trust me, you're going to like something like this. This is about as nerdy as it gets. Making Waves is fantastic. This makes Ben Burt a hero, uh, the sound engineer. I mean, it's honestly, it's tough to describe a movie like this because you say, what's the appeal of it? But I think if you love movies, you appreciate how they're made and how important sound is. And here's all the different elements of sound. There's... You know, there's ADR, you know, when the actors go back and track stuff. There's actual sound when you're recording it there on site. There's Foley, which is my favorite one. Foley is unbelievable. They, they, they show the people doing Foley, and it's like they have snowshoes, and they have snow on the ground. They're in a warehouse, and there's a microphone like an inch away, and they're making the sound because they have to, you know, insert the sound of, you know, snowshoes. Like the Foley artists are the best. Foley is easily the coolest one. Then you've got, of course, the SFX. So you got the sound effects. So those people are making, the- those are interesting too. They're like a freaking keyboard. Okay, let me try to make a, maybe make cool sounds. And then you've got, and I wish they had done this. This is my only criticism of the movie. The Raging Bull, famously, you know, when LaMotta and Sugar Ray have that big fight. Remember, Marty's using like animal sounds. Like he's got like an elephant whirring in the background. Like it's crazy because it's meant to show, you know, LaMotta's disorienting state. I'd like to see the people come up with those noises. But trust me, they use lots of great films. The Godfather. Okay, remember when Michael Corleone finally shoots uh, Solozzo and McCluskey? You know, what's the sound? It's of a, a subway train. And like, okay, why are you using a subway train? Well, that's Michael's interior state. You know, he's thinking of himself as this careening train. It's like the, you know, the, 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 I think the way the guy described it was the neurons are balancing against each other, colliding right now. It's like a train. Um, Apocalypse Now, the sound is incredible in Apocalypse Now. They had like 12, I'm not even exactly, like 12 different sound people working on Apocalypse Now as far as different sound engineers, literally doing each thing. Okay, you're just going to do war noises. You're just in charge of helicopters, whirring, and machine guns. Okay, now you're getting ambient noise. Okay, now you're working on dialogue. Okay, now you're getting sound effects of wildlife. I mean, in terms of sound, Apocalypse Now is like one of the most incredible movies ever. I'm sure Joe can speak to this. Uh, as far as why it's so important. As far as directors, you've got George Lucas talking about the importance of sound, how Star Wars... Listen, how'd you come up with Chewbacca, right? How'd you come up with that noise? They've got the guy who did the Chewbacca noise. And how they interpret that, the R2-D2 beeps. how do you come up with that? Um, so, you know, you've got Lucas, you've got Sofia Coppola, Ryan Coogler, of course, a great director, Black Panther. you got him talking about the importance of sound, why sound is so important in a movie. Even, even in film history, Kubrick was a guy who very much improved upon how important sound was in Spartacus and how can we get in different noises and different sounds to help elevate the story, different tracks. Honestly, Making Waves is a movie for movie lovers. 
but I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. It, it made me realize a lot of these heroes behind the camera and just how indispensable sound is. Seriously, now when I watch the movie, I'm going to be paying more attention to sound. And they, they thankfully show clips where they took all the sound out, what it does. You know, in the past, you think of sound, you think of the score. And there's been movies, by the way, there's a great documentary called Score, which I reviewed on Cinefile a couple of years ago. That's fantastic. We're not talking score here. We're not talking about John Williams. We're talking about purely sound. How important is sound in a film? How can sound set up suspense? Everything. Even if you think of a, like a bucolic film, like if you think of like Little Women, it's just the sound of the brook, the sound of, uh, you know, wind. Wind is really critical in some of these movies. They say, well, the wind is so important. How can you get a good wind noise? Honestly, Making Ways is fabulous. Joe, you got to see it. It's tremendous. I really, 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 really need to see this movie. This is right up my alley. And you're right. It's so, so important. And I'm looking right now. Um, Jason Bourne, Bourne Ultimatum, won three Oscars, including mixing and editing. There's a fight sequence in that ad name where it's completely filmed, meet out sound, without sound. And they throw in every punch, window shatter, plane, everything in post. And it's so important to the film. I, I, the, they need to get paid more. There needs to be some sort of like advocacy program for sound engineers. I'm all about this documentary. Uh, and you're right. I mean, there's so much of the sound that I thought, oh, you get it on, you know, on site and then you mix it in later. But sometimes you're getting nothing on site. You're right. And you're mixing it in completely. So you're so dependent on getting good sound there in post. Mark Feeney of Boston Globe writes the blend of historical overview, film clicks, tech info, and inside business on offer is pretty irresistible. Peter Bradshaw of Guardian, if it feels like a feel good in-house promotional video for Hollywood technicians, well, they've got an awful lot to feel good about. And lastly, one of my favorite film critics in America, Owen Gleiberman of Variety. Making Waves is about the evolution of film technology, yet the key to its appeal is that it revels in the holistic, aesthetic side of technology. Not just buttons and dials and gizmos, but technology as an expression of something human. And that is well said. Rather than just being a bunch of nerds or making noises, they're adding a human element to it. And that's the key here. Sound can be part of something that is a very humane experience. Even though it's something technical, it ends up being something very artistic. Go check out Making Waves. It's terrific. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk to Manola Dargas. She's the chief film critic for the New York Times. Matter of fact, she's got a very celebrated career. I mean, in the past, she's a former member of the National Society of Film Critics, LA Film Critics Association, uh, been nominated for a Pulitzer a few times. I mean, she's done a ton of great things. Going to get her thoughts on the Oscars. Why she's so happy about Parasite. And good news, she didn't like Joker just like me. talk more about the Academy Awards, seriously, you will not find a better film critic in America than Manola Dargis. She is the chief film critic for the New York Times, joined the paper in August of 2004. She's been a Pulitzer finalist three times, big fan of A.O. Scott as well, one of her colleagues there. Previous to that, she's a film critic for the LA Times, and she's done a variety of columns throughout the years and, and anthologies, etc. Honestly, her work speaks for itself, and you should all read her, and you should all listen to her now here on Cinephile. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Manola. I know you were under the weather there in Sundance when I was corresponding. I hope you're at full health now. I am, I am, and certainly uh, the, the Academy Awards helped boost my health a little bit, I have to say, for, for a change. <laughs> uh, it was a real boost for all cineasts, cinephiles, and anybody who loves uh, world cinema, Asian cinema, just great cinema, because anybody who saw Parasite Manila, I didn't know one person 
who watched a film who didn't love it. That literally the most scathing review I think I had from a friend of mine who said, oh, I thought it was really good, not as great as others said. And the majority of people I know who saw it said, that's an incredible film. I hope that wins everything. And what was a very predictable night, and I would think a very kind of a slog, to be honest with you. I didn't realize the Grammys all of a sudden took place when Eminem showing up and Marty's falling asleep. And we'll talk with the Irishman in a second. But when Bong Joon-ho won for Best Director and when Parasite won for Best Picture, can you imagine two more exciting moments as film lovers than both of those? No, I mean, it really was. I think that most of the people I know, you know, and I know a lot of critics and we, you know, everyone I know really does as well loves um, Parasite. But we've gotten used to our favorite movies being shut out and, you know, some, a win for something like Moonlight, for example, a couple of years ago, that just feels like a complete anomaly. So I think we were kind of predicted, you know, there was this kind of sense of uh, resignation that, yes, there was a long march to 1917, the Sam Mendes movie winning Best Picture. And when um, Bong Joon-ho won for Best Director, that kind of shifted uh, the evening and it felt like, oh, and I remember I turned to my husband and I said, well, at least he won Best Director because, of course, 1917 is going to win. So, <laughs> And I had the same thought, too. My wife says the same thing. She goes, well, they do that sometimes, right? They'll give, you know, Spielberg director, Stephen Private Ryan, and Shakespeare in Love wins Best Picture. They like to split them up a little bit. And I said, yeah, at least they gave him director, as you said. But 1970, got it. Won the PGA, won the BAFTA, won the Golden Globe. I mean, come on. But how endearing is Bong Joon-ho? I mean, his speech, he, he literally, you know as well as I do how many of these people uh, can pretend to be shocked. There was no uh, pretending with this guy. He was absolutely amazed that he won Best Director. And I thought his speech was so beautiful, the fact he specifically cited Scorsese and how he inspired his work uh, in South Korea, and then Tarantino, who's always been a real uh, supporter of Asian cinema. What a beautiful speech. It really was, and you could see even when he when he won um, Best Director and he was on stage, I you could tell he immediately looked at Scorsese. You could see the sight lines, and I found that deeply moving. He was acknowledging the great debt that Scorsese, you know, that he owes Scorsese, like so many people. And you know, when we talk about um, international cinema, I think we sometimes kind of only think, oh, so South Korean cinema is this thing, but cinema is international, and Bong Joon Ho is as influenced by Martin Scorsese as he is other, you know, leading world auteurs. You know, people do not, I mean, you know, movie lovers, including movie directors, do not have, you know, put up some sort of little wall around themselves and say, oh, I'm only going to watch this kind of movie Hollywood. And so what's interesting is that Bong has been developing a pretty, with only seven features, a pretty strong following. And it was just really great to see that he wasn't just some critical fetish, that actually people inside the American movie mainstream really were recognizing his talent, but he in turn was recognizing Scorsese. So it was really kind of beautiful. A friend of mine who has not seen the film cast a jaundiced eye for this reason. He said, okay, so the Academy's had a real problem, well-documented, well-publicized, with a lack of diversity yet again, going on from Oscars so white this year, only Cynthia Erivo's nominee and the acting nominees. So doesn't it look nice now to reward a film from South Korea for not only Best Picture and Best Director? And I said, okay, that's an interesting thought to have, but anybody who has seen Parasite knows how great the film is, how genre-bending is, how audacious it is. And 1917, to your point, would have been a very safe, predictable choice. I think it's an acclaimed film, and particularly I love Deacons. Obviously, the fact he won for cinematography, I'm overjoyed the fact he went 0 for 13 and now he's on a hot streak. He's 2 for 2. But I'm with you, Manola. Anybody who, who would discredit uh, Parasite is somebody who just doesn't appreciate how great a film it is. 
Yeah, I think that's a very for, uh, sh- uh, short-sighted uh, take, honestly. And, you know, I hope that your friend actually watches the movie rather than just having opinions on something he or she has not seen yet. Um, I think that, and you know, the diversity um, problem remains. I mean, you know, the problem in American uh, movie industry is a problem of, um, you know, not very many opportunities for people who are not white. And, you know, just because a movie from Asia won doesn't mean that, for instance, the representation and uh, choices for Asian Americans is any different. You know, that is still a huge problem. There's actually a really good New York Times um, editorial by the critic Walter Chow talking about this very issue that I really urge people to look at. Because this is a movie from South Korea, but that doesn't necessarily translate into greater opportunities for black Americans, Latinos, and Asian Americans within the, the uh, American entertainment industry. You can follow her on Twitter, at Manola Dargis, M-A-N-O-H-L-A-D-A-R-G-I-S. Your tweets are always very funny. Uh, <laughs> like a lot of critics I've followed, David Ehrlich, Ty Burr, you guys are also funny and very sarcastic. And you've had some fun at people who have been, uh, I guess, took issue with your criticism of 1917 or your review of the Sam Mendes film? Um, yeah, my favorite was uh, somebody writing me and telling me that it was written by somebody who had never been to war, which I thought was a very strange bar to set for um, um, a movie review. And I'm like, no, it was written by a movie critic. Um, I don't, I can't speak to the veracity of, I don't believe Sam Mendes has been to war either. Um, but I can certainly speak to the movie's quality as, you know, um, I certainly, the cinematography is, very, very, very fine, and Deacon's understandably one. Um, but beyond that, I was completely unimpressed by the movie. Yeah, your review is terrific. I encourage people to check it out in New York Times. Uh, aside from Parasite, now we always have rooting interest. As you said, we get used to being bummed out and disappointed. What were other awards? I mean, the rest of them are very predictable, particularly the acting awards. But is there one that stood out to you that you said, okay, you know, I know Laura Dern was going to win, but I'm happy she won? Or was there another award that you were particularly pleased with? Um, I think mainly the awards, the acting awards were very predictable, as you said, um, and they had been called for a long time. I was very happy for Brad Pitt. I had recently written a a piece about Brad Pitt and kind of revisited his career, and I think he's very deserving. And The kind of thing that he does is uh, kind of difficult to explain because it just seems so natural and seems as if he is somehow playing a version of himself, which he might indeed be doing. But I think we often don't think about great stars also being great actors. And he is actually a really great actor. And so for him to be acknowledged by his peers is actually very, very nice. And of course, I love Laura Dern. And I would uh, urge people to seek out her work, including with uh, David Lynch, who really kind of pushed her to new levels of expressivity. She's a terrific, terrific actor. That's well said. I thought Joker was really overrated. For me, Manola, I found it so derivative of Scorsese's Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy, and I just thought it was a thoroughly unpleasant film experience. So I find it tough to stomach that not only did Joaquin Phoenix win Best Actor, but it also won Best Score. And The Irishman of the nine Best Picture nominees is the only one that went home completely empty-handed. Your thoughts on Joker and Irishman? I am not a fan of Joker as well, and um, I was kind of fascinated at how heavily it cribbed from Scorsese. Uh, it was kind of this uh, fake Scorsese movie, but without any of the intelligent heart or talent. Um, I thought it was really sad that Scorsese's uh, The Irishman did not do better, um, including just um, with the movie going public. I think that to a degree it was really... I don't think it was helped by its association with Netflix. Um, I think that people just said, oh, I'll watch it on television. 
But this is a movie that I think actually does need to be seen in theaters. One of the things about movies is that you have to go out to the movies and they kind of keep you captive. You know, you're inside the movie theater. And at home, it's just very easy to have this control, obviously, over the movie. And, you know, you get a little bored, seems a little slow. You pause it. You raid the refrigerator. And the entire tempo and feeling of the movie completely changes. And it's, I think a movie like The Irishman is not well served um, on television. I just don't. And I think it was really hurt by that association. I couldn't agree more. I, I think that there's definitely backlash within the industry. Uh, and I completely agree with you that I saw it in the theaters several times. And that's why I loved it so much. Because as you said, I'm, I'm held captive and I'm in that mood. I'm in that moment. I don't look at my phone. I don't have other things issuing with me. So I'm with you. I, I think that there was kind of that muted reaction to it. And unfortunately, too many people ended up watching it um, at home. It's interesting. The Oscars end up being a celebration of the best films. But of course, for you, for me, for any of us, you know, these are not our favorite films of the year. For you, you know, your top 10, you love the film Honeyland, which was a rarity, first time ever nominated for Best Foreign Film and Best Documentary. Uh, the Souvenir, which is a film I know you loved as well, that was not nominated. But maybe a thought on both of those films and, and hoping that others will find those. Because I know aside from, you know, Little Women, Marriage Story, The Irishman, obviously films you loved, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I think if you could kind of give a vote of confidence to those two movies, maybe people might check them out. Honeyland and The Souvenir. Well, Honeyland is a really interesting movie about a beekeeper, um, and from the very first scene of her walking along a terrifying uh, cliff, uh, it had it has you going. And it's a really interesting movie about the changing world. Um, it's very it's observational. We're just we're with this woman for the entire movie, and but it has great drama, and it's really a, a lovely movie. I highly encourage people to see it. And then The Souvenir is a really interesting movie by uh, Joanna Hogg, who's a really uh, incredibly inventive British um, filmmaker who just suddenly broke through with this one movie, but has a, a number of films, um, and she was really instrumental in Tom Hiddleston, the, the actor kind of, um, you know, helping him with his movie career. She makes uh, very interesting, somewhat intellectual movies that are very much not kind of strong narratives, but give you a lot else, including visual beauty. So I highly recommend her. She's H-O-G-G. A couple of the films I know you like didn't, didn't crack your top to me. You recommended them. First off, Booksmart. How, how witty and refreshing and funny was that movie? It would have been nice to see that get a screenplay nomination. Well, I think it's really nice. And one of the things that is good about Booksmart is that it's a movie directed by a woman, in this case, a performer named uh, Olivia Wilde, and that it is... What you're starting to see is that you're having more and more women making movies. You're having um, also attention being brought to women who are making movies and attention to the barriers that women um, face in trying to get their movies made. So anytime a movie um, directed by a woman gets some sort of traction, I'm always really happy about that. Whether or not I, even I like the movie or not, the more movies we have by a different, uh, different kinds of people the greater the number of stories that will be appealing to everyone so that we're not just seeing the same old movies with the same old people and the same old stories. That's well said. And what I'm surprised, sticking with the Olivia Wilde theme, Richard Jewell, which is a very polarizing film. And as you know, for all those uh, you know who work in journalism, the key criticism of the film was as impactful as the performances were, and I thought Paul Walter Hauser and Sam Rockwell and Kathy Bates were all terrific, the depiction of the media, and particularly of Kathy Scruggs and Olivia Wilde's portrayal of it, was so unfair 
that it distracted or at least detracted from the excellence of the film for some. You really liked Richard Jewell. What was it about the film that you liked and did that aspect not impact you? Um, I did like the movie. I, I don't love it. It's not my favorite of Eastwood's movies, but I thought um, in terms of it being a study of a kind of a very modest man and the nightmare that he's uh, brought, you know, that, that happens to him, um, I thought it was very well observed, very well acted, as always the case with Eastwood. He's particularly, you know, he's really, really strong with actors. And I like the, the smallness of the story. Um, you know, Eastwood representation of women is very up and down historically, like many um, American directors and many directors in general. Um, in this case, it was unfortunate, but it's one of the cliches. I mean, it's incredible to me that filmmakers are still embracing the cliché of the, you know, the, the female reporter who sleeps with a source. Um, uh, and it really often makes me think that um, that filmmakers have a real problem with the journalists who cover them. Honestly, it often feels like the revenge <laughs> of the filmmakers on the journalists that they have to deal with when they have to do junkets and everything else to publicize their movies. So, you know, I, I rolled my eyes at that, but I don't need to love every single thing in a movie to actually like the movie. I, you know, yeah, it's I well said. There's still definitely some good moments in there. Um, last one for you here before I want to ask you just a, just a general film criticism question, but you're at Sundance. Um, I know it's always a crazy experience. I went a couple of years ago and you just, you're watching three movies a day, but it's great because it's cold outside. So what else would you rather be doing but watching a bunch of movies? And it's great documentaries <laughs> and indie films. And my friend Ben Lyons was just there for five days and he watched 15 movies and there was a bunch that he saw. Give us one or two that really stood out for you. Um, let's see. I mean, now Sundance feels like it's so in my rear view mirror, you know what I mean? So it's like, I have to kind of think about what was the thing that, um, I really liked a lot. Um, you know, there were some really, really fine documentaries as usual. I mean, Sundance is an interesting, um, uh, place to go see, you know, take, kind of take the temperature of the American movie industry. And, um, there were a couple of movies by women that I was really excited by, um, I felt that the diversity at Sundance feels very unforced. It feels very, very natural. You don't feel at this point that people are just checking boxes. You feel like they're actually just bringing the very finest work. And there was a documentary that I liked very much called Time, uh, another one about uh, called Saudi Runaway, which is a really hair-raising documentary about a young Saudi woman um, who is trying to escape her home. And it's a real turns into quite a thriller as you follow her you know, she was, it was all, she recorded everything that she was doing on her cell phones. And that, that should be coming into theaters at some point, maybe later this year. All right. Look forward to that. Last one, as I said, I'm just a huge fan of your writing and just, you know, the depth with which you write. You know, I think great film critics, you have to obviously have a knowledge and passion for film, but you have to be a great writer. And I feel like whatever your subject matter would be, you'd be a great writer just because your structure and your verbiage, like, you know, I'm looking up words all the time that I'm reading. And I'm like, oh, that's so good how you get to the core <laughs> and the essence of it. What, yeah, and I see there's a compliment, like you're helping my vocabulary even as I'm reading the review and you're enriching my film. What I want to know is this. Are you one of these people who literally you watch the film and you just you're just naturally gifted and you can just pound out the review or are you like pouring over every sentence and is it difficult for you because if it's the former you're going to upset me even further that i wish i had that aptitude and the talent that you have i every week is different you know every day is different um you can't i can't spend too much time luxuriating over my prose because i'm a daily movie critic so i'm you know i'm reviewing a couple movies a week so you just literally do not often have the time and sometimes you'll see a movie on monday night and you have to the review has to be filed the next day so you know to a certain extent 
said, you just do the best that you can and you move on and you just think, well, that may not have been the best thing, but nobody, you know, on to the next. <laughs> so I, I like the, um, the rhythms of the, uh, of the daily, you know, daily uh, journalism because it really kind of keeps you from being too precious, which I think can happen uh, if you have too much time. Right. Is there a favorite review of yours or one that you remember at least you could off the top of your head? Oh, gosh, no. No, 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 no. I've been doing this for 30 years. It's a real, that's a lot. Those are all, that's a lot of words. So, no, there's, uh, I literally. Okay, but let me ask you this then. Was there ever a review that somebody took you to task for, like you particularly remember? You don't have to see the actor if you don't want to, but somebody reached out to you and said, hey, listen, so-and-so is a little bit miffed here what you said. Oh, my gosh, all the time. You know, I just, you know. I used to work at this uh, uh, newspaper called the LA Weekly, where I was crowned the you know queen of hate mail. But one of the thing, one of the truisms <laughs> is that women tend to get a lot more hate mail than than men. I got hate mail um, when I worked at the Village Voice years and years and years ago, and that was back in the day when people actually would write letters, you know. And I could always tell that someone was angry because you could see the bumps on the letter. You know, someone had really with all their heart and anger written me something in pen and you could just feel the anger just rising out of the envelope. So I, at this point, I, it really just doesn't bother me. Um, I read it and if it's not too, you know, nowadays it's mainly email and I'll respond um, as long as it's not um, something that is, you know, people are just cursing at me and yelling at me. Um, I will respond. But everybody has looks at a, a movie differently and I think that we just have to kind of charitable about that yeah all art is subjective and, and everything you write is certainly worthy of acclaim check her out manola dargas is her twitter handle and of course you can read her excellent work in the new york times really appreciate you joining us here in cinefa manola all the best in 2020 and keep up the great work thank you so much Mount Rushmore. All right. Thanks once again to Manola Dargas. Check her out on Twitter and follow her. She's always sensational. Make sure you read her work. Time now for the Mount Rushmore of heist movies because of Queen and Slim, which is a modern day Bonnie and Clyde. And so when it comes to the Mount Rushmore of heist movies, well, I've got to include Bonnie and Clyde because seriously, without that, I, I don't even know if there's a genre. So Bonnie and Clyde for me is an easy one. I'm also going to include Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs because of the way that he, you know, mixed with sound and, and uh, obviously timing and the, the different narrative structure. And I think Reservoir Dogs also is a very funny movie and obviously great performances all around. Doesn't happen that Harvey Keitel agreeing to do the film as well. I thought about including Jackie Brown maybe as a companion piece as well. Obviously, Jackie Brown's phenomenal too, but a true heist movie. I think of Reservoir Dogs and these six guys, you know, Mr. White, Mr. Black, Mr. Blue, trying to rip off the jewelry stuff. So, okay, so there's two there, Bonnie and Clyde, and we've got Reservoir Dogs. I'd love to get the town in there, Ben Affleck movie, which is pretty underrated, but I don't think it's quite Mount Rushmore. What I am going to do is shock the world and put in quick change. That's right. Bill Murray, heist movie. It's one of my dad's favorite movies. We love Bill Murray and playing a clown, Randy Quaid, Gina Davis. I can't even, I can't even talk about it without laughing about it, okay? Right now you're thinking I've lost my mind? No, no. Quick Change is one of the great heist movies of all time. You can book it. So that means what else do I put here as my fourth spot? It's not going to be Logan Lucky. I'm not a huge Soderbergh fan. Of course, I'm going to put in Michael Mann's Heat. Just the sequence alone where they're pulling off the heist is incredible. Um, 
I mean, obviously that whole sequence is amazing, but just about the whole idea of cops and robbers, bad guys, etc. That means with this list, Bonnie and Clyde, Reservoir Dogs, Quick Change and Heat, I'm leaving off the usual suspects. So I'm going to just cheat and say, well, I don't think of it as a heist movie. I think of it as a thriller or a suspense film, whatever you want. Bottom line is this, I had to find a way to get Quick Change on there, and I did it. Joe, you're Mount Rushmore. Are you going to get Baby Driver in there? No, I'm not. It was it was a toss-up. I'll throw that on my honorable mention one. Um but I will agree with you with Reservoir Dogs for sure over Jackie Brown. I'm also going to throw in uh, Point Break, Bodie, Johnny Utah. I'll make you famous. I'll make, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you want the ultimate, you got to be willing to pay the ultimate price. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And then I'll throw in The Sting, 1972. Yes. Oscar-winning film. Really great uh, great score. I think uh, the Scott Joplin ragtime piece is the score. Yeah. And then I'll throw in... It's tough. Uh, dog Day Afternoon. Love I'll throw it. in Dog and Day Afternoon, and I'll be happy with that list. Yeah, I feel like I put Dog Day on enough other lists as well, you know, Pacino's Best, et cetera. But you're right. As far as a heist movie, I mean, that's amazing. A bank robber, everything just chaos ensues. Uh, Pearson's screenplay was, uh, I believe, won the Oscar. It was so well done. Obviously, Sidney Lumet, one of the great directors of all time. Dog Day Afternoon, you can't go wrong with Dog Day Afternoon on any list. And you can't go wrong with Cinephile. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Please do subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week as we'll turn our attention now towards what they used to call the small screen, but now we all know TV's got a lot of good stuff out there as well. The miniseries in HBO, The Outsider, plus the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And in weeks to come, we'll talk about Utopia Falls along with director, my man, Randall Thorne. RT will be in the building. All right, until then, I'll see you at the movies. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.